Beloved brothers and sisters, uh, today in the first Sunday of Lent, we're beginning a sermon series on the mission of the Son, the mission of Jesus Christ, as we move through the Gospel of Mark, and we watch Jesus go about this mission. And we learn what was the purpose for which Jesus Christ came into the world, and how he walked out his mission, how did he accomplish it, and what that means for us, gathered the body of Christ who are on mission as well. Before we get into that, in the next coming weeks, today we're going to focus on two necessary first movements or conditions for that mission. Whether it is the mission of Jesus Christ and His ministry of His three years on earth, or our ministry and mission as Christians who follow Him. And these two things are this. That before mission, we stand in God's blessing and we remain in the presence of God. It's very simple. We stand in God's blessing and we remain in the presence of God. So let's remember that. But it would be good to say very quickly what the mission of the church of Jesus is from his word. Others will unpack this in the coming weeks uh, much more completely. But two references. First, the mission of Jesus can be summed up quickly from Luke 19. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Son of Man, a name for Jesus. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Christ's mission in the world is to heal the wound that was caused by sin. To make a way to be with the Father forever. Like we were in the Garden of Eden before the fall and like we will be in the New Jerusalem At the end of all things, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, that's us, and to unite us to the Father in relationship again, in oneness with God. And the mission of the church is simply to proclaim that good news, to say that good news to the world, and to make disciples, to lead others in following that way of acknowledging Jesus as Lord, as Savior, Accepting his sacrifice for our sins, believing the gospel, the good news of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, his death and his resurrection. And we get this from Matthew 28 and other places. But Jesus tells his disciples before he goes to heaven, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's the mission we are on. Proclaim that Christ has accomplished his mission and to lead others in following him. Now, this is not a mission that is exclusive to pastors or priests or evangelists. It is your mission, brothers and sisters. It is the mission of the church, of Christians. It's worked out in millions of different ways, and it looks different for just about every Christian with different giftings and callings, but the mission is common to all. Lead others to Jesus. Tell them what He has done. Pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Watch God turn dead sinners into living sons and daughters. Watch God free prisoners. So we're looking this Lent to Jesus to see how He lived out this mission. He is our pattern. And we're letting him be our guide because the world that we live in has broken models of success. Jesus is our God and what it means to succeed in this mission that we all share. 
We want to hear about hustle. We want to hear about strategy. We want to hear about the things that we can do, 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 and work, work, work. In other words, the world's pattern, the fleshly pattern for mission is performance and then blessing. If you perform well, then you will be loved. If you perform well, then you are accepted. It's a simple lie. But it has some of us by the throats. Maybe all of us in little ways, if we're honest. And Jesus guides us into something different. His mission, we'll see, begins under the blessing of God, the acceptance of God, and is nourished by the presence of God. It's blessing and communion with God first, and then work. We see this pattern in Ephesians 2. Just to pull this out, draw this out very quickly. Paul says, we were dead in our transgresses, but made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's God's blessing, his grace, his salvation. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the work. We're on display for the world. And then Paul says it again, if you missed it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. It is the gift. It is God's word over you. And then he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For good works which God prepared beforehand for us to do, that we should walk in them. You see that? It's God's word, his blessing, communion with God, and then the good works that God has prepared before and for us to do, and then the mission. So today's message is kind of a a preamble to this series on mission. Where do we begin? So I read Mark 1, 9 through 11. You can look there with me in your Bibles. The first place we begin is standing in the blessing of God. I said there was two, standing in the blessing of God and remaining in His presence. So standing in the blessing of God... Starting in verse 9 here. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. This is where the mission of Christ begins. In the waters of baptism, in the blessing and the benediction or the good word of his Father, Jesus receives God's blessing. He receives the name that God gives him, my beloved Son. And not only that, but the entire Trinity is present. We see the Spirit descending on the Son and then the voice of God thundering. Jesus receives it. He stands in the water, in the love and acceptance of his Father, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and God pours out his love on him, thunders for everyone to hear, this is my son, I am well pleased. So there's water, there's the Spirit descending, and the Father speaking. If this sounds like creation, it is meant to. In Genesis 2, all of creation is pulled up out of the water. And God calls it good. Adam and Eve are called very good. And if you read here the story of Noah, then good. Noah and his family, the last people on earth, the first people on earth, 
brought through the waters of the flood, given the promises of God. We read it in our Old Testament reading. The covenant is given to him. I will not destroy the earth again with water. God brings them through the water and gives them his good word. Then we hear the echo of Exodus. The people of Israel brought through the waters of the Red Sea. A new people with a new law, a new identity. No longer slaves. But now children of Yahweh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Exodus 20, you belong to me. And Jesus identifies with us, identifies with humanity by walking the same path. He is the perfect Adam, the perfect Noah, the righteous Israel. He's one of us. And he's showing us what it means to be truly human. He takes a posture or an attitude of receiving Hands open. Before his mission, he simply receives the word of his father, the blessing of his father, the love of his father. I have a a pastor friend, uh, some of you met at Synod a few weeks ago, Matt Canlis. He loves to point this out. That up until this point in the Gospel of Mark and all the other Gospels, Jesus has done nothing. Yes, he has lived a sinless life. I don't want to miss that. But in terms of his ministry proper on earth, he's done nothing. The wine is still water. The lame are not healed. The blind are still walking around, bumping into things. The Pharisees are not humble. The woman at the well is still sinning with the fifth man who was not her husband. The centurion's daughter is sick. The 5,000 are not fed. The demon-possessed are not free. Zacchaeus is still a greedy little twerp. The dead are not raised, and death still reigns. And God says to Jesus, before any of that is accomplished, Beloved, my son, I am well pleased. Blessing first. Hear the words over us first, and then work. And our lives mirror this. When we have children, you know this. They come into the world, and they are completely useless. In fact, they're a, they're, a, they're a negative. You're going to sleep a lot less. You're going to be worried a lot more. Your hair is going to start to look like mine. But you love them. You can't ex- describe the love and the feeling that you have when the first time they look at you and they smile. This is how God feels about us. It's the same thing with marriage. We had a marriage here last week. In a marriage, we have these vows, we have the words, we have the blessing. It's said that it is good. There is a benediction given over this union. And the marriage has done nothing. The couple doesn't even know who sleeps on which side of the bed. And we still say, this is good. This is the way our God works. He reaches out. He accepts. He gives his love before there is any mission, before there is any work. And it is the same with our salvation, with our life in Christ. In our baptisms, we are in the same posture. We receive the blessing of the Father. We go under the water. We receive the the new name. We are told to fight bravely under the banner of Christ. We receive the the, the sign of the cross as a token of our new life in Christ. This is a passive posture, hands-open posture, and in it we're following Christ. 
God says over us in our baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And this water of baptism is is the sign of our new life, of being made new. And in this new life, all we can do is receive. And all that we can say that we've done to come to that point of God pouring his love on us is that we have received. And mission begins here. This is vital because we have to live the good news we're proclaiming. We cannot begin and continue and sustain a mission in a posture of climbing or grasping. In a mindset that believes that your life in Christ depends on the things that you do for him. Does mission involve work? Yes. Does it mean blood, sweat, and tears? Absolutely. But we follow Jesus. And the pattern we are given says, the life of Jesus says, rest in the love of the Father. First, receive God's word over you. Stand in his presence and then work. Work after him. And in that work, we continue the posture receiving. Throughout his ministry, Christ receives He receives his human body. He receives birth in a manger. He receives this blessing at the River Jordan. He receives death. Not my will, but thine. He receives resurrection. He receives the church. He receives glorification in heaven. All of his ministry looks like this. So should our mission be open-handed. God, what do you have for me? I receive your spirit. I receive your word. I know who I am in Jesus. I am beloved. I receive your wisdom and direction. And all of it's given. From the Father to the Son. And all of it was received by the Son from the Father. And we follow that. So that's our first uh, movement that we receive. Receive the word. And we remain in the present. Second thing. I'll read again from Mark, picking up in verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. This word, the wording is striking. Uh, Mark moves very fast and dramatically like he does through his whole gospel. Christ is immediately driven out into the wilderness after his baptism. And this is really strong language. This driven out. He's ejected. He's thrown out. In the other gospels, he's led out into the wilderness. We'll see the sense that that draws out. But here in Mark, he is driven out into the wilderness. And what's out in the wilderness? Satan, wild animals, and angels. What a bold picture of what's going on. And I think there's two senses of this wilderness for us to look at. There's two senses. The first one, I pick up from that, from uh, the use of the word driven in Mark. This, this idea of ejecting or throwing out. The first sense of wilderness then is a sense of discipline. I said Christ was walking in the story of humanity... And that story includes sin. Jesus does not sin, but he walks out the consequences of our sin. Again, we go back to Adam and Eve. They fall and they're driven out of the garden into the wilderness. You can imagine the wilderness of the newly created earth and the newly fallen earth and the things they must have seen. There's a poem by Madeline Lengel um, that describes this. 
And it's Eve talking, and she says, we did not know about the unnamed animals and the wild angels. The angels gone wild, rather. That is wilderness. Same with Noah. His family began the work again. But in the generations after, they turn aside. They become obsessed with this idolatrous tower they're building at Babel, this, this supposed utopia. And God breaks it up and he drives people out to the corners of the earth. The same with Israel, saved in the Red Sea, saved from Egypt, given the law, given the mission, but they don't believe the promises of God. They turn back to the idols of Egypt and God drives them out into the wilderness for 40 years. And so in this way, Jesus is driven into the wilderness of the discipline that belongs to us. Fulfilling and redeeming the story of humankind. He is taking, as he does fully on the cross, our punishment. There is a sense of this as Jesus goes into the wilderness. There is a discipline he takes unwillingly, not from guilt, not from obligation, but from love. He doesn't whine for bread. He doesn't accuse God of abandoning him. He doesn't quarrel or pick an argument with the angels about the lack of water. He doesn't lay down and abandon all hope like Hagar. He simply receives the discipline. He walks into the teeth of the curse. This points forward to when he will walk into the teeth of death and defeat it. That's that first sense of this uh, driving out in the wilderness. The second one is where I want to spend a little more time. The other gospel says say that he is led out into the wilderness. I want you to hear this. The wilderness... Even in the sense of discipline, guys, the wilderness is an expression of the love of God and an invitation into the presence of God. Jesus is driven out into the wilderness. It's a desert. It's a waste full of wild animals. At the same time, what does Mark say? The angels are ministering to him. Angels are messengers. What are the messages they're bringing? They're bringing messages from God. Presence, love, encouragement. Jesus is in the wilderness to commune with his Father. Why does God drive Israel out into the wilderness for 40 years? Yes, it is to discipline, but so that they know who he is. They spend a generation learning the ways of God so that they would day and night experience the presence of God in the pillar of cloud that shades them during the day and the pillar of fire that sits over the tabernacle at night. He wants to be with them. He tabernacles or or lives in a tent with them. They're out in the wilderness so that God can be near them. The wilderness is an expression of God's love and an invitation into the presence of God. And so Jesus is driven into the wilderness where he does what humanity should have done in the wilderness. Remain in the presence of God. That's our second big point. Remain in the presence of God. You might say, well, it's not really in the text in Mark that he's praying or he's in the presence of God. But we see this pattern in Jesus' life. You can't miss it. Just to go through a few verses, Mark 1.35. This is what Jesus does. This is actually um, after this. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Luke 4.42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him. Mark 14, 13. And when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But then the crowds follow him, and he has compassion on them, and he feeds them. And after all that work, he goes back to it. And after he had dismissed the crowds, 
he went up the mountain by himself to pray. Mark 6.46, And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Luke 6.12, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. That's before he chose the twelve apostles. Matthew 2.6, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And there's more. But I hope you get it. The wilderness for Jesus is a place of the presence of God. He goes to be with his Father. And if we miss this, we get a bad perception of the wilderness. Something like God is sending, driving his son out in the wilderness just to haze him, to test him, to mess with him a little bit, to see if he really has the guts, to see if he's man enough to really do this. If we read it like this, we might get the wrong sense that the mission of Christ hangs by a thread at this moment, that everything's in jeopardy, right? He's in the desert. There are wild animals. Jesus is fasting. He's hungry. And then Satan shows up, the father of lies. How bad could it be? Everything's going to fall apart. But that's not the story. That might be what Satan was thinking. That might be why he showed up then. I've got him now. He's hungry. He's burned in the daytime. He's cold at night. He's been dodging wild animals for 40 days. This is my chance. And that's the way the flesh thinks. That's the way demons think. That's satanic logic. Nothing good can happen in a wilderness. But Jesus, but Jesus has been sitting in the presence of his father for 40 days. He's been praying and fasting and seeking God. He's been reciting scripture for 40 days. He's been feasting on the delights of his father for 40 days. Sleeping under perfect star-filled nights. The heavens declare the glory of God. The mission was not in danger here. Maybe there were other times. Maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass. But not here. Jesus is standing in the name he was given. I'm a beloved son. He is filled with the Spirit. He's full on the Word. And Satan doesn't stand a chance. You read it. There's no hint of context. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you you serve. Satan is humiliated, sent packing. Your salvation, the mission of Christ to seek and save the lost, was never more secure than it was when Jesus was in the wilderness with his Father, remaining in the presence. It was love time between the Father and the Son. So brothers and sisters, when God sends you to the wilderness, when you are driven out, you are not alone. God is with you. You are sent to pursue his presence, to seek him in prayer. And there are wildernesses we are driven into. We all feel this. Death, death of a loved one, miscarriage, secret sin come to light, broken trusts, disappointments in work. And these usually come with a healthy dose of time and space, wilderness. In that, seek God. In that, ask for His Holy Spirit to fill you. Pour over His Word. Remember your baptism, the Word that He spoke. Lent is one of these kinds of Sorry. Another kind of wilderness is the ones that we practice. 
where we go, we seek regular time alone to be with Christ, to, to read his word and to pray. And Lent is one of these kinds of wildernesses where we want to remain in his presence. We do not fast in Lent because there is something better about being hungry spiritually. Our hunger gains us nothing. We fast because we are spiritually starving. We're starving for the presence of God, starving because we don't read his word as we should, starving for a lack of prayer. And the physical hunger points us to our spiritual hunger. So Christ here is calling us, be filled. Know your father, spend time with him. I can't express to you, brothers and sisters, how much God loves you and wants you to spend time with him and and wants to commune with you in the way that Jesus was communing. Wants you to eat his word. Wants you to pray. There's a fierceness in this love. A fierceness that drives Jesus out into the wilderness just to be with God. That's what the wilderness is for. To have more of God. It's not about the things that we leave behind. It is what we are gaining. We are gaining God. So in Mark, we see Jesus preparing for a mission in a way that seems backwards to our sin-darkened eyes, to our performance-obsessed culture. Do well, work hard, then you may earn love and acceptance. The gospel is totally backwards to this. Stand in God's word. Stand in what he says about you. Stand in your baptism. Remain in his presence and then work. You will not enter into the mission of God with any power or effectiveness if you are not standing in the blessing of God, if you do not believe that you are beloved, if you do not know in your heart that He loves you before you do anything. This is the way given to us by Christ. Rest in Christ. You will, not, you will enter in the mission of God with seriously diminished power and seriously diminished effectiveness if you are not remaining in His presence. Welcome the wilderness. Make time for it. Your time belongs to God who wants to be near you. Mothers and fathers, bring your family into that wilderness. Read the Bible with them. Pray with them. And find time alone with God. Fill up on His presence. Pray and read and read and pray and be hungry and be full of God. And if you don't feel that hunger, start here. Lord, make me feel my spiritual hunger. Let me feel my need. Jesus was physically hungry when He met the devil in the wilderness. He was physically worn out. He was probably a little dirty. Probably a little smelly. Tired of the wild animals, perhaps. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit, full on the Word, and Satan had no chance. And we this week, brothers and sisters, from this table, we are being sent out into a wilderness. We are being sent out into the teeth of the curse. Stand in your name, beloved son, beloved daughter. Remember your baptism. Remain in the presence of God and be filled with the Holy Spirit and be full on the Word. So as we come to this table... God once again speaks his blessing and his love over you. We say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here you receive what you cannot buy and what you cannot and did not earn. Here you are again filled with Christ. And with the words of Psalm 23, which are the words of Christ in the desert. And should be our prayer and our hope before mission. You prepare a table before me 
in the presence of my enemies, and my cup overflows. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.